Hey, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 23. That is where we are going to spend our Palm Sunday today. We've been in a series called Famous Last Words, and we've been focusing in on the ministry of Jesus from the cross. Seven statements that Jesus made in the period of about seven hours that he hung on the cross that'll wrap up next week at Easter. We'll study the final two of these. But today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 23, and we're going to listen in on a conversation that three dead men had with each other. He said, Christian, how do we know they said these words? How do we know that this is what they talked about? Those are the questions I ask when I read the Bible. Luke, who wrote what we're going to read today, said that he went and interviewed eyewitnesses to everything that he wrote down. And I have to believe, as a pastor who studied the Bible a little bit, that Luke either talked to the centurion standing at the foot of the cross of Jesus who had heard all these three men talking to one another, or he had talked to someone in that centurion's family or inner circle, because only someone standing at the foot of the cross could have heard this conversation take place. But as we listen into it today and learn the truth, I want to tell you of everything that we have learned in this series so far, for those of you who are Christians already, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here I'm glad that you're here. I hope you'll keep coming back and learning more about Jesus. But if you're here today and you're a Christian already, I think today's message from the cross might be the most important one in terms of really building a depth in your faith. So what does Luke tell us was said on this day on the cross? We start, Jesus is on the cross, and here's where Luke picks up in verse 38. Luke said, there was a written notice above Jesus which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. Let me give you a little pop quiz for those of you who may have been around church for a while. We know why Jesus was on the cross and what was going on. What about the two criminals? Why were they on the cross? What did they do? If you've been raised in church, you might say, well, like, didn't they steal something? Weren't they thieves? Weren't they called thieves on the cross? That's really a bad English translation of the original word written there. What did they do? If they were thieves, what could they have stolen which would have demanded death from them? Do you know the answer to that question, why these guys were hanging with Jesus? The answer to that question is more than just the answer to a trivia question that you might one day need in Bible trivia. The answer to that question opens up a whole new level of Christianity for those of us who are here today trying to understand how to follow Jesus well. You see, we miss the depth of the promise in Jesus' statement, today you'll be with me in paradise, if we don't understand the reason for the punishment of the criminals that he's talking to. So in order to understand the depth of what Jesus is saying, not only to these criminals, but to us, we're going to go behind the story. We're going to listen again to this dialogue. And what we're going to find is that three statements are made by three different people that really represent three kingdoms. And my hope today is that you will kind of figure out where you are spiritually, what kingdom you're sitting in spiritually, what kingdom you're settled in spiritually, and what kingdom you may need to move into spiritually as your faith grows. Three statements that represent three kingdoms. Statement number one represents the kingdom of now. 
I call it the kingdom of now. It was made by a criminal hanging on the cross with Jesus. I don't know whether he was on his right or on his left. It would help my OCD if I could know that because in my head, I could see which, which direction Jesus was looking as he talked. But all we know was one of the criminals. It was the one who spoke first. And in verse 39, it says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? He said, save yourself and us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that statement, my spiritual antenna went up. This statement tells me that this guy was not just some common criminal who was on a cross for some common purpose. This statement tells me this guy had some spiritual history. This statement tells me this guy had some spiritual education. This statement tells me that this guy was actually living with spiritual purpose and he had some spiritual expectation. This was a loaded statement. I want you to look at it one more time. In verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? I want you to circle the word Messiah or underline it or highlight it in your Bible if you've got it open on your lap. Because you need to know this is not a word that people use in everyday conversation today or 2,000 years ago. As a matter of fact, how many of you used that word this week? Just in random conversation, you just talked about the Messiah and what was going on in your life in regards to the Messiah. It's not just a term that gets thrown around, especially in the days of Jesus. The Messiah was understood by Jewish people to be the spiritual savior of the world. The Messiah was understood to be the future ruler and king of the end times and eternal kingdom of God. The Messiah was what the Jewish people had put all of their hopes and dreams on. That at some point in time, someone would come and he would make everything right again. The Old Testament prophets talked about the Messiah. Jeremiah talked about him. Isaiah talked about him. Micah talked about him. And Zechariah talked about him. And it's interesting because the word Messiah is not even found in the Old Testament. But the concept of a king, the concept of a king with the heart of David, the concept of a king with the warrior spirit that wasn't afraid of anyone, the concept of a king who would come lead a righteous people that would not just exist in a little corner of the world in the Middle East, but a kingdom that would be global and would last forever, the concept that God was going to come and restore broken people living in a broken world was a big concept. And by the time of Jesus, everyone was looking forward to this happening and they had coined the term messiah it meant anointed one it was one god was going to send to make everything right but they were looking three different groups were looking for the messiah three different ways there was a spiritual group looking for a spiritual messiah isaiah talked about him as the suffering servant there was a thought that there was there was someone that god was going to send who would allow people to connect with God in a real and eternal way. And there were some spiritual people looking for a spiritual Messiah. This crowd flocked to John the Baptist. When John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom of God is near, the spiritual people said, okay, we'll do it. We're looking for someone who can connect us spiritually to God forever. This was the crowd that followed Jesus, looking for the spiritual Messiah. They just wanted to be connected to the Messiah. There was the political class. They were looking for a political Messiah. The political class hated Jesus because he was not a political Messiah. 
You hear the political class. They're called Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests and teachers of the law. These were people who were expecting the Messiah to basically allow them to become the Roman Senate. They would rule the world with the rules and regulations of spiritual things that they had memorized. And they wanted to know if Jesus was the Messiah because they were trying to figure out how that was going to impact them and if they were going to have a good gig going forward. Jesus disappointed the political class. But then there was the the military class. What probably better is termed the militia class, if we understand the militia movement in America today. This was a group of people who was looking for a warrior king. This is a group of people who thought the Messiah was going to look like David. He was going to carry a sling and a stone and a sword and a shield, and he was just going to go kill everyone in his way and just take by force what was his. This criminal who was talking to Jesus was one of those people in the extreme. So how do you know that? I'm going to show you in a minute. But what I need you to understand is that three crosses had been prepared for three criminals that were going to be crucified on Passover before Jesus ever entered the conversation because this is what Rome always did. Rome always crucified people on the biggest holidays of the cities that basically they had control over. And here's who they would crucify. Anyone who rebelled against Rome would be crucified. Pick the biggest celebration. So in America, it would have been the 4th of July. They would have on the roads leading into and out of the major city, they would have crucified dozens of people. History tells us Rome had crucified more than 30,000 people by the time Jesus was crucified. And they did this to send a message to the people of the world, don't mess with us. Don't mess with us or we'll kill you and we'll kill you in this way. And often they would put a sign above their head saying who they were, why they had rebelled, how they thought they could overthrow Rome. And it was a message to everyone, don't mess with Rome. And three criminals were going to be crucified on Passover at that place, every Passover, at least three, because Rome was going to send a message. Mark actually tells us, because you're thinking, well, how did Jesus end up on one of those crosses? Jesus never did that. Well, Mark, who was one of Jesus' friends, Mark, who was with Jesus on the night that he was arrested, Mark, who wrote a book about Jesus, walk us through the trials of Jesus, and he takes us to the cross of Jesus. Mark reminds us that Rome actually wanted to do two things on the big kind of festivals that brought the world together. One, they would send a warning outside the city saying, don't mess with us, and they would crucify criminals up and down the street. But two, inside the city, they would send a message that we love you, and, and we love to rule you, and we're for you. So every year on the Passover, they would bring out some criminals that the people wanted released, and they would say, because we're good to you, because we love this city, because we love the people, we're going to let you choose a criminal to be released because we just want you to know Rome is for you. And they would let them choose whether or not a criminal got to be released. And Mark said, this is how Jesus ended up switching place with a man called Barabbas. In Mark chapter 15, we find out who these men were and what they did. Mark said it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. What were these guys crucified for? They were insurrectionists who had committed murder in an uprising trying to overthrow the Roman presence in Israel, according to Mark right here in Mark 15, 7. Whether their leader was Barabbas or whether he was just one of the three, a cross had been prepared for him and he had been sentenced to die that day. And when Pilate stood him up and said, you can choose which one goes free and which one gets crucified, the people said, we want Barabbas, you can have Jesus. Jesus was literally crucified on a man's cross named Barabbas who had 
committed murder trying to basically overthrow Rome in Israel. Verse 8 says, the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did, release one. So he said, okay, and he released Barabbas. But he crucified the other two with Jesus right in the middle. Now this insurrection is who Jesus was looking for. Here's what his statement tells me. He was not only looking for the Messiah, he probably mistakenly thought he was fighting for the Messiah. When he said, aren't you him? Aren't you the Messiah? Like, if you're him, if you're really him, shouldn't you save us and yourself? Like, isn't this the time now we, we overthrow everybody? It's almost too late for us now. These zealots would stop at nothing. History tells us that these insurrectionists would fight against Rome so many times that finally in A.D. 66, the Roman Caesar would send the whole way to the Roman in, uh, army against Jerusalem. And he just said, tear it down. Just tear the whole thing down and kill them all. It was at that time that they knocked down the entire Temple Mount except for one portion of the wall that we now know as the Western Wall where you can go and pray today. He leveled the temple that Herod had built on top of it. He tore down the city walls and they literally chased the last hundred insurrectionists into the Dead Sea to a desert stronghold called Masada where the last 100, instead of uh, surrendering, they went ahead and killed themselves. These guys were not going to quit until they were all dead. So they crucified with them. With, with, they crucified these two with Jesus in the middle. The insurrectionists didn't understand who Jesus was. He didn't understand what Jesus was promising. You see, the insurrectionists overlooked the spiritual blessings. He overlooked the future promises of the Messiah. And he focused only on the immediate impact on the current condition of their lives. The insurrectionists were, were worshiping a Messiah who led a kingdom of now if we could rephrase this criminal's question to Jesus, basically he was saying, aren't you going to do anything to help me? Like, haven't you come to help me right now? Like, didn't you come for my cause? Isn't this all about what I'm all about? And sadly, there are so many Christians today who I think mistakenly have been led to believe that this is what following Jesus is. That Jesus came to support your cause. That Jesus came to make your life better. We, we attach people to Jesus as if, hey, Jesus came to be your good luck charm. Jesus is all about you. And the only problem is when, when things don't seem to be all about us, we question whether Jesus cares at all like this man did hanging on the cross. Aren't, like, aren't you going to do anything? Do you even care? We begin to gauge the goodness of God and the love of God. And the blessings of God and the power of God on the current condition of our life. And if our life is good, God is good. And if our life is bad, God may not even be real. He certainly can't be trusted. And I'm not sure if he should be worshipped or served. See, that's what happens when we live in the kingdom of now. Do you know the greatest eclipse of spiritual perspective is the priority of me the greatest eclipse, the thing that gets in the way more often of anything else than what God's trying to do in your life spiritually is you and your concern for self, all of our concern for self. This is what this criminal was saying to Jesus. Aren't you going to help me? Aren't you going to do anything? Didn't you come to help me right now? And when the focus of our faith is us, when the focus of our faith is what's happening with us, Instead of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and what Jesus has promised us and what Jesus has given us to do, man, we end up in a bad place spiritually. This guy ended up on a cross. 
And he was confused about who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing. Like maybe some of you are confused because life hasn't turned out the way you thought it would turn out following Jesus. And you're trying to figure out if it's worth it anymore. You see, kingdom statement number one represents people who follow Jesus for them and for here and for now. Kingdom Christians like this, they're tight with Jesus while everything is good and blessed. But as soon as things get hard, they begin to grow a little distance because they haven't grown past this kingdom. I think probably every Christian begins here. I know that I did. It's all we understand of Jesus, what he has come to give us. But as we begin to deepen it in our faith, our perspective broadens a little bit. And that's what we see in the second criminal. In statement number two, we see what I call the kingdom of when. So statement number one is the kingdom of now, right here, right now, all about me. Are you doing anything or are, are you even real? The second criminal gets beyond that. He's listening to this guy talk to Jesus. He's seeing Jesus not respond. So he kind of confronts the criminal and says, you know, don't, don't say that to Jesus. But then he said this in verse 42 to Jesus. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, the fact that he used the word kingdom tells us that he has a spiritually enlightened mindset. Just like the other guy, he's on a spiritual mission. Just like the other guy, he's trying to understand who God is. Just like the other guy, he, he believes he's leaning in on the mission of God. He's looking for his kingdom. It's the exact same thing Nicodemus was looking for in John chapter 3 when he said, like, how do, we, how do we get into the kingdom of God? There was this kingdom mindset. How do we get where God is in charge? This guy wanted to know that. But he had settled to saying, Jesus, when it comes, I want to be there. When? Man, is when like one of the worst words in your vocabulary like it is in my vocabulary? It's like a four-letter word to me. I would always rather have God tell me to move than wait. Because if God came to me and said, Christian, here's your command. I want you to wait. I would say, okay, well, like when can I stop? Like how long do I have to wait? This criminal put all of his faith for God's blessings on Jesus' timetable and said, I'm going to live in the kingdom of when. I'm just going to trust you are who you say you are. I'm going to trust your good. And I'm going to let you figure out the timing of blessings in my life. Now, this guy was in prison for insurrection. He was just like the first criminal. But he changed, which is great news. It tells us people can change. It tells us our faith can be deepened. For those of us who are here and we live in the kingdom of now, this guy tells us there's hope that we can get to the kingdom of when. But unfortunately, like him, sometimes it takes suffering to open our eyes that God has to mean something bigger by all the promises that he gives us. It's interesting that we celebrate Palm Sunday today. It's one of the most misunderstood spiritual holidays on the calendar. Remember the, the message of Palm Sunday? If you've grown up like me, you at some point on Palm Sunday put on a little tie and they gave you like a little branch and you ran up the aisles waving it and you maybe got to cross the stage and walk down the other side. Maybe even got to walk the donkey in. I did that one time in the little church that I grew up in. It was awesome. Palm Sunday was awesome. It was the one before the Easter egg hunt. That's how I knew it when I was a kid. John said Jesus started Palm Sunday in Bethany. It was a little town two miles just outside of the... Mount of Olives and Jesus got on a donkey and as he crested the Mount of Olives and began to ride in Jerusalem His friend John who was with him said that they took palm branches And they went out to meet him shouting Hosanna Hosanna man that sounds so spiritual Hosanna remember what Hosanna means it means save us now That's what Hosanna means Save us now See all these people praising Jesus were living in the kingdom of now 
And you know how long the kingdom of now lasted? Four days. On Sunday, they were like, yes, we put all our trust in you. By Thursday, it was like, yeah, it must not be him. On to somebody else. And they allowed him to be arrested. And the next day, he was killed. Four days. And then Jesus ran out of time. You know, there are some people in this room today, and maybe some who are watching on their computer right now, who are like it almost sunset on day four. Like, you, you haven't wrote it down, but internally, you've put a time limit on the goodness of God, on the power of God, on the blessing of God, and your Hosanna is almost ready to end because now you need Jesus. And if he doesn't show up now, then he might as well not show up at all. That's Palm Sunday. And it's interesting because there's some of you in here, life isn't going the way you anticipated for it to go as you follow Jesus. There's some of you in here, life is not going the way you need it to go as you follow Jesus. But you know what? If you ask me, I think it probably has a whole lot more to do with broken people living in a broken world than it does with Jesus. And that's what the guy on the cross recognized. You know, when I, when I was in high school, I never went to bed on Saturday without watching Saturday Night Live. It was like in the heyday of its show when I was in high school, Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, Chris Farley. I mean, I never went to bed on Saturday. You couldn't TV because we just didn't do that back then for those of you who are under the age of 25. So I'd watch Saturday Night Live and I'd go to bed. And they had this little sketch on Saturday Night Live called Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy, which were just stupid sayings. I mean, more than anything, you know, just these things that didn't even make sense, but they were like so dumb, you would laugh. And they would run these as they were going into commercials. And I'll never forget one of these deep thoughts by Jack Handy as they moved to a commercial. You know, this guy comes on with his deep poetic voice and there's like poetry screaming up, the, you know, kind of streaming up the screen. Um, and he said, you know, sometimes when it's raining really hard, I like to tell my kids, that's because God is up in heaven and he's crying. And then I tell them, and it's probably because of something you did today. Like, those were the type of things that were deep thoughts by Jack Hand. I always found that so funny. But the reality of broken people in a broken world, the reality of maybe even what's broken in your life today, it probably has more to do with us than it does to do with God. Like, when God cries over the brokenness of the world, it's probably because of something we have done not something God has done. And on the cross, this guy had a moment where he looked at the reality of life and he looked at Jesus. And he said, you know, I'm not sure why everything is going the way it is, but it's not his fault. Look at what he said in verse 40. As the criminal said, if you're the Messiah, like you got to save, you got to do something. It says the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We're punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This insurrectionist who was going to take the kingdom of God by force, all of a sudden, spending a few moments with Jesus, looked at the broken world around him and the state that he was in. And he told his other partner in crime, listen, what's going on here? There's a lot of reasons it went wrong, but none of them are his fault. This has way more to do with us and the things we've decided in our life than it has to do with him. He's not done anything wrong. 
And I think he began to process this thought, you know, if, if we would have lived our lives individually the way God would have wanted us to live our life, and as a community, we all lived as, as a community the way God wanted us to live as a community, like if we really would have done things his way, we probably wouldn't be here. And I believe that one day there will be a kingdom where people live according to his way and he gets to be in charge and people do things the way that he says to do them. And if there is a kingdom like that that's out there or if there's a kingdom like that that ever comes here, I want to be a part of a kingdom like that. So he turns to Jesus and said, if that's true and when that comes, can I be a part of it? Because I don't want to do this thing anymore. I mean, there's a hundred reasons why it's going wrong, but none of them are your fault. So when you come and you get to be in charge, can I be with you? Because I want to be a part of that. Whether that's me going someplace else or that's someplace else coming here, when that's here, I want to be a part of it. Because broken worlds with broken people aren't working for me. The kingdom of when. You see, this insurrection has placed his faith in Jesus' timing for the fulfillment of all those promises, for the fulfillment of all those blessings, something in this guy's heart changed and said it's okay to trust Jesus for the timing of the blessings and the timing of the kingdom and the rules of his kingdom. It's okay to trust even if the blessings aren't going to come in this lifetime. It's okay to trust and follow. This guy was going to die soon, but he said, I'm going to die trusting that what's next is worth trust. See, kingdom number two, kingdom statement number two represents people who follow Jesus for him. It represents people who follow Jesus for there. It represents people who follow Jesus for eternity. It's a much deeper level of faith and trust than where many of us start or where maybe you are today, which leads to statement number three from Jesus. His response is a kingdom of promise. The kingdom of now the kingdom of when turns into what Jesus says is the kingdom of promise. He said in verse 43, truly I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. Do you know paradise is a word used only twice by Jesus? If you have your Bible, you ought to underline it or circle it. Jesus only said the word twice. Here and in Revelation 2.7. And it's interesting, both times Jesus used the word paradise to help people understand the difference between the kingdom of now and the kingdom of when. We've just gone through the context on the cross. In Revelation chapter 2, it happened this way. Jesus from heaven was speaking to his friend John, and he said, I want you to write some letters to some churches to help them kind of refocus themselves. The first letter was to be written to a church called Ephesus. And here's what Jesus said to write to the church at Ephesus. Tell them you have figured out everything there is to figure out about church, and you're doing it awesome. But it's become about you. You've got a theology now that makes it about you and you have lost your first love. Like all your Christianity revolves around you, not Jesus. And he said, if you don't find your first love, if you don't return the kingdom of God to being about Jesus and not what Jesus is doing in your life right here, right now, he said, you're, not, you're gonna lose the chance to eat from the fruit of the tree of life in paradise. And both times Jesus used paradise to help us distinguish between the kingdom of now and the kingdom of when. Jesus said, if you can fix your heart and you can fix your perspective, one day you're going to get there and I'm telling you it's going to be worth it. But if not, you're going to quit. You'll quit early if it's all about now. So why do you follow Jesus? Kingdom one or kingdom two, why do you follow Jesus? Do you follow Jesus for the me here and the now? 
If you do, that's okay. All of us do for a time. But have you deepened your faith to begin to follow Jesus for the him and the there and for the eternity? You know, most people I talk to say, Christian, I, I would like to say that I followed Jesus for kingdom number two. But the reality is kingdom number one is going so badly right now. I just don't know that I have the faith. I feel like my faith is being tested. The me, the here, and the now is so bad that I don't know that I can focus on the him, the there, and the eternity. You know, listen, in a moment on the cross, this man's perspective was able to change. You know why? Because in trials, our faith isn't being tested. It's being deepened. God isn't using our trials to try to get us to quit. He's not using our trials to try to trick us. He's not using our trials to see how committed we are. He's using our trials to deepen our faith so we can step back from our, our, our initial commitment to Jesus and say, well, I committed to Jesus so all these things would line up and go well in my life, and I'm doing all these things, but now they're not all going well in my life again. It allows me to step back and say, is there more to my faith than what I first thought? And I begin to have my faith deepened. And I get to begin to understand that the kingdom of God is not just about now, but it's about later. So why do you follow Jesus? For the now or for the later? Remember the candies now and later? The worst candies ever made like on the planet. I, I found now and laters right about the time that I got braces when I was in middle school. This is a candy that's kind of a, like a taffy type deal that just never goes away. Like you can put it in your mouth now and it's there later, years from now. I mean, it's just like an awful candy. And here was the problem with trying to eat this candy with braces. Like if you just put it in your mouth and you wait for it to dissolve, it takes so long that eventually you have to spit it out. You never feel like, okay, don't have time for that anymore. You spit it out. If you try to chew it with braces, it gets stuck in your teeth. So you end up spitting it out. Either way, you spit it out. And you know what? There are a lot of Christians who they have Jesus for time, but when he takes too long to do what they're waiting for him to do, they spit him out. I'm not going to follow him anymore. And there are some Christians who kind of chew on things spiritually for a little bit, but every time they get stuck, they say, I don't want to do this, and they, and they spit it out because they've not learned to follow Jesus for now and later. But that's the tension of growing faith. Learning that it's not all just about now and that there's a whole lot of later. You know, the Bible introduces us to what Hebrews chapter 11 calls the heroes of faith. The people in the Old Testament who laid the foundation for New Testament Christian faith. And it says that every one of them at one point had to transfer their faith from I'm following God for now to I'm following God now because I trust God for later. And it says this of Abraham, the patriarch of our faith, and his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. It says, by faith they made their home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. Abraham lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Then it goes on to give a list of his family members, and it says, these were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better. I want to go back to verse 9 in that text and ask you to look at the last line there. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were heirs of nothing but a promise. They lived in a land that was never theirs. They lived in housing that was never permanent. 
They literally followed a promise their entire life that never came true. And at some point they had to realize the promises of God are not just for this life only, but are all ultimately fulfilled later in in eternity. And it said, Abraham taught his family to look towards later when they trusted God for now. Because that's what they had been created for. You know, I'm not sure if you tracked astronaut Scott Kelly last year. He spent a year in space, 360 days actually, at the International Space Station. The reason they sent him up for a year, they'd never sent anybody up longer than six months before, is that it takes six months to get to Mars and six months to get back. And they're trying to figure out if we can send a man to space long enough to get to Mars and do a mission and actually come back. So they sent Scott Kelly to the International Space Station for a year. And they chose him not because he was at the top of his class, Not because it was his turn, but they chose him for a very specific reason. Because he had a twin brother who was an astronaut named Mark. And they needed for a year, in order to understand what space does to a human body, they literally need the same body to be in space and earth at the exact same time so they can run the exact same test on them every day to find out the exact same results of this is what this body looks like on earth and this is what this body looks like in space. They needed a DNA replica so they could find out what space does to a body. So they sent Scott up and they sent Mark down and they literally did the exact same thing, ate the exact same meal, slept the exact same amount of time, worked out the exact same amount of time for 360 days to see what space does to a body. You know what they found out about space? It's not good. They found out that as soon as you get into space, you begin to lose bone density. And after a year, you've lost 20% of your bone density in space. Your bones become very, very brittle. Your muscles begin to atrophy after your first week in space because the lack of gravity means you don't have to carry your own body weight. And literally, the minute you get to space, your muscles begin to die because you don't have to use them. Your genes literally age faster. They see your bones shrinking in density. They see your muscles atrophying. And your genes begin to think you're older. And they begin to age your body in an unnatural process. Your vision becomes worse because of the lack of gravity. All the blood flows to your head and all the optical nerves are kind of squeezed out in your eyes. So your vision every day becomes a little worse in space. And your heart muscle literally has the ability to shrink by almost half because it does not have to push blood down because of gravity. And it works so little that it just loses all its strength. You know what they learned after a year in space studying a guy who's identical twin was here on earth running through the same test they realized that humans were not made to be in space humans cannot exist very long in space and you know what jesus teaches us on the cross today christians were not made for the earth christians were not made for the world that we live in Because no matter how spiritually strong we get, we leave. And you know what? The strength of our spirit begins to weaken the minute you walk out of these doors. The air that we breathe on this earth is not spiritual air that feeds our souls. Our heart, literally, when it leaves here and turns on any type of radio or television or even picks up our phone, our heart has to begin working unnaturally to keep our spirit alive. And what we learn from Abraham, but just what we learn by experience, is our spirit is not meant to thrive here on planet earth, a place with broken people in a broken world. Just doesn't work here. And Abraham looked at that and either said, Jesus has really failed in what he's done or he's created us for someplace else. 
And the kingdom of God is not just now, but it's later. And when tragedy comes, and it's coming. And when nations bomb nations, and that's happening. And when starvation and hunger hits, and when marriage gets hard, and when finances get tight, and when parenting gets tough, when everything goes wrong that makes your heart kind of beat out of your chest spiritually, those are signs not to question Jesus, but to remember that Jesus has made you ultimately for someplace different. It's time for you to deepen your faith in those moments, not question your faith. And Jesus teaches us that from the cross. You see, it's my goal that on this Palm Sunday, that your faith would be deepened. That the way you think about things of faith would be transformed. And that through your sufferings that all of us will endure, that we would not question Jesus, but that we lean into him. And that the voice in our head that always questioned Jesus, where are you? When are you coming? Save us now. Help me now. That when we began to hear that voice, we would hear it through the lens of the first criminal hanging on the cross who literally only cared about him now and there. And we would realize that's not the voice of faith and that's not the voice of the spirit. That's the voice of me clouding spiritual perspective. And if I could pull back like the second criminal on the cross and say, Jesus, when the kingdom comes, and boy, it ain't today. Man, we're at war with Syria. Our government just seems to be going crazy. My kid's failing math. I can't pay my bills. My car's got a flat tire. And the Royals got swept at Minnesota. I mean, you can lay all the things out that are bothering your soul. This world's a broken place. Jesus says, yep, good thing you've been created for another one. Lean into later. When now gets hard, but don't quit. Lean into later. Would you bow your heads and would you pray with me this morning?